Spread the Fire fam, welcome back to the Sizu and Bof Walsh experience, SMWX. And in today's episode, we shift our focus to non-fiction literature. I interview Temba Maseko. Temba Maseko was a senior government leader and made headlines when he outed the Gupta family, suggesting that they influenced government appointments especially at the State Capture Commission, where he spoke about his experiences as CEO of the Government Communications and Information Systems. He's just written a new book called For My Country, Why I Blew the Whistle on Zuma and the Guptas. And so in this interview, I pick his brain on the book, see why he wrote the book, and delve deeper into some of the revelations that he makes. Hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. Baba, thanks so much for joining us on SMWX um, to speak about your new book, For My Country. The book opens, um, and this is something that you've also recounted at the State Capture Commission with um, a call from former President Zuma to help his friends, the Guptas, when you're in your position as CEO of GCIS. And you take us into how that leads you into the Gupta residence and meeting with the Guptas. Um, it's, it's a fascinating view of, of the way that state capture worked um, and your resistance to it. But one thing that I was thinking about while I was reading that, that section, when, when finally you actually almost abused um, and you're kind of told, listen here, either you give us the advertising money or you, we will get you fired. Um, what was the tone like of that, of that exchange? Because when you read it in, in the written word, or even when you spoke about these things at the State Capture Commission, there was a kind of even tone, but I, I assume the tone was actually quite different. The tone was <clears throat> something that actually got me extremely upset because um, RJ Gupta itself um, was talking down to me. He was um, using a very authoritarian voice, like giving an instruction. And that's what I, I, I partly took exception to because I, mean, I thought it was totally unacceptable for somebody who's not in government to give an instruction to a government official and remember, GCIS is part of the presidency. So it was, in effect, an outsider giving an instruction to a senior government official who works in the president's office. And I could only assume that he was doing so because he knew that he was having a very special relationship with, with the president uh, himself. But the fellow who called me before Ajay himself, I think his name is Tony or something, mm. he was also very... I think authoritarian in his way of dealing with me because he was essentially demanding a meeting with me. And when I said, listen, call me on a Monday, we can set a time. He was also saying, no, no, the meeting needs to happen on, on Monday at eight o'clock. And I thought, what the nerve for somebody mm -hmm. who's not in government to demand not just a meeting, but also setting a time for the meeting. So the tone was actually quite uh, distressing, if, you, if I could use that word. Mm -hmm. It's um, 
it's a really interesting view into what it's like to be at the center of this tug of war um and i just wondered from your perspective because the book goes into your background your history as a as a student activist as an ANC activist and then finally as a senior government official and i think the, the stories of people who have risen to prominence in our country still seem to be untold you know like so i had no idea about the struggles that you went through just to get to vits for example um why why have we failed to tell these these stories and and why do we know so little about the people who we see on our tv screens um every night i think there's a, an element of of fear uh, of the challenge of writing a story telling stories and unfortunately we in a situation today where people who are involved in the actual struggles uh, are not telling their stories so their stories are being told by journalists and and other authors and 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 i think it's a it's a big challenge that all of us face because many activists went through tough times uh, during the struggle days um, and they many of them are likely to go to their graves without their stories being being shared so in a sense they will go to their graves with with the history a very rich rich history of struggle and it gives one the worry because you know what's happening in the country today particularly the politics that are taking place inside the the ruling party it gives a sense that you know many of the people sacrifice their lives families that were destroyed um a lot of that is actually going to waste because of what is happening in the country today and i i'm i'm hoping that through my book many activists are going to be inspired and encouraged to tell their stories so that future generations can know what it took to be where we are as a country and why so many of us are equally distressed about what's happening in the country what's happening in the ruling party itself so the need to tell stories in my view is absolutely vital and this is my small contribution to say there's more to us than just what we read about in the newspapers yeah i think especially with your generation and of course the generation before you when someone rises to prominence or makes it to a public position that there's 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 a trail of overcoming poverty of fighting against tremendous injustices but i also while i was reading started to think about the link between those difficult early years that you faced and and many black leaders in our country faced having to make it through difficult times not always having uh, food when you go to school um as you as you as you put it and and you take us into the difficulty of 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 life under apartheid in soweto or any other place and then i think of all leaders now luckily you were one who spoke out but all leaders now who are in these prominent positions have a lot of money have a lot of power and maybe we haven't spoken enough about what it means to come from poverty and then have money and how difficult it is to say no to that opportunity when you have come from such a difficult background yeah no that's that's a a really tough one because if you look at um 
the way things have turned out in the country today, we, we had a situation now where people associate leadership and serving the nation with wealth. Mm. In other words, people see participation or political involvement as a route to living a better life. And, and a lot yeah. of it has to do with the fact that a lot of people who are in leadership today are people who've, who've not had the opportunity to study, to get qualifications, to work outside of politics. So politics has become a, a way of life, a way of earning an income. And unfortunately, we've got too many young people who are beginning to think that that's the objective of public service. Mm -hmm. That's the objective of getting involved in politics. Whereas I think that there is something much deeper that gets people involved in politics. It must be about improving the lot of the poorest of the poor, being a servant of the people, being a servant of the country as a whole. And, and some of us were fortunate because whilst we're involved in struggle, we were also studying. I mean, we tried to mm. strike a balance between studying and, and also getting involved in, in, in the struggle. It wasn't easy, it was tough. Many of our comrades never made it to, never made it to get qualifications, degrees, et cetera, et cetera. So we always had the opportunity to actually get into jobs, into professions outside of government and politics. And that's why people like your father, Dali, uh, qualified and is an advocate, he's still involved in politics, but he's an advocate. So he did not have to rely on politics to put bread on his table. Whereas with a large part of our leaders today, politics is all they know. Uh, they've got no alternative. So if mm, mm. getting into politics means you must uh, acquire wealth, because if you get out of politics, you've got no other source of income, you've got no qualifications, no profession. And mm. I think that puts a lot of the leaders in, in a difficult uh, position, but it didn't have to be like that. Uh, because mm. a lot of these political jobs or jobs in government do give a decent income. And that's what I was getting when I was working in government. So mm. the need for people to get involved in corrupt activities is something that still needs to be studied about why do an activist who cut their teeth in the trenches of the struggle, mm. after liberation, they become the most, one of the, some of the most corrupt people that our country has seen. So it's something that needs to be looked at. My worry is just the generation of young people who are getting into politics, into government, because they see it as the only way of acquiring wealth. Um, I mean, we, you hear stories of people looking for jobs and being told that you at municipal level, unless you are an ANC card carrying member, you are not gonna be employed in this municipality or you're not gonna get this tender. So we're actually shifting uh, the mindset around uh, in a way that makes people think that if you want to make it in life, you must get into politics. And that's a very unfortunate development that our country is seeing. It is unfortunate. And, and as you say that, I think of young South Africans at the moment. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always so interested in, for example, the way that student protests happen, where you clearly have a protest that's in some ways against the current government. But many of the students are wearing ANC t-shirts at the same time. And it speaks to, on the one hand, an anger with where we are, but on the other hand, a calculation that young people have to make, which is that if I do not join the ANC or if I am not part of a certain political group, then my prospects 
are actually quite limited. So you kind of have to balance, you know, on the one hand, not limiting your own life prospects, but on the other hand, uh, vocalizing your dissatisfaction with where the country is right now. I think but money has become the source of all evil in, in our public life today. Um, mm. And it's not just uh, in the student movement, uh, because even in leadership positions in some of the institutions, um, mm. student leaders tend to end up living a better life than ordinary students. Mm. So if mm. you're an, an ordinary student, um, you're an activist, um, you tend to have access to resources. I don't know where they get them from. Mm. Uh, so SFP presidents are seen to be owning cars or buying cars and wearing smart clothes. And mm. it sends a, a signal to ordinary students that if I want to be like that person, I must also get involved in politics. And I mm. think that's what needs to change in our political culture. It's not just student movement. You look at the true trade union movement, for example, you know, a member, a person joins as an ordinary member of the union, but within a matter of months, uh, somebody already lives in the suburbs, drives a smart car, goes on annual holidays. I mean, those of us who travel, who used to travel abroad, you see the kind of lifestyle that some of the union leaders even live mm. when they are actually overseas on holiday with their families, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's a, a negative culture that has crept into the, into the country where leadership, involvement in the public service is equated to wealth. Mm. Well, let's come back to to the narrative of the book and you know as i say it's interesting because in some ways the title of the book relates to your speaking out against state capture in the zuma years but it's actually something of a memoir that that really encompasses your your whole life um and and so to the audience watching, do do read it from that perspective to understand, you know, the, the, the full life of, of someone who I think has contributed a lot to the country. But of course, the juicy, the juicy part, as it were, is is this part where, you know, you're right at the center of government when the state is, is being captured, as it were, or recaptured, maybe. Um, and you take us into this cabinet meeting where you are being effectively fired because it seems like you're not cooperating with the Guptas and moved into a new position. Um, what was that process like? And can, can you paint that picture maybe even more than you are allowed to do with the space constraints in the book of what it's like to sit in a cabinet meeting and watch all the things that are happening around you when you yourself are even being removed? Well, it was a, a fascinating experience. I mean, I had the privilege mm. of running the whole government communication system um, in government, and I, I attended cabinet meeting as a matter of course. So all the major decisions were, that were taken, it was my job to communicate those to, to the public. 
at no stage was I ever the subject of a communication discussion. And yet it happened in that cabinet meeting. I mean, the, the important thing is to just go back a few days before that cabinet meeting, mm -hmm. where I get a call from Minister Chaban who says he needs to meet me urgently. I go and meet him in his office. And then he tells me that he's, he's got bad news to share with me. And those news were that the president has called him. The president, Zuma, was out of the country at the time. Minister Chavane tells me that Zuma had instructed him to remove me from GCIS by the time he comes back into the country. Sure. Um, and he was attending an Addis, a, a heads of state meeting in Addis Ababa. So I'm Can, told sorry. on the money. Could we just stop there? Because that alone is, is what, what was Minister Chabane, um, may I saw rest in peace, what was his demeanor like when he had to say to you, like, when, when President Zuma gets back, he wants you gone? It was quite difficult. I didn't, I didn't wish to be in his position because mm. Minister Chabane and I had a very good relationship. We played golf together. We met on a regular basis. So when mm. he called me to say something was urgent. Uh, I, I did expect something difficult for him to share with me. Mm -hmm. So as I walked into his office, I could tell that the man was not himself. Um, he, he was um, a little bit shaken even. Um, and then he just told me that, you know, he doesn't have good news for me. He's just received this call from the president. And I could tell from even the tone of his voice that in fact, this is not the, the callings I, I, I knew. Mm -hmm. And he just broke the news to me to say the president wants me out of the GCIS position by the time he returns. Um, I obviously sank into my chair when I heard this news, but I could tell that Collins Chabani was communicating something that he did not agree with 100%. Mm -hmm. And then when he shared the news and asked him, what does this mean? He basically says it means that you know he doesn't have a choice, but he has to implement the instruction from, from his boss but he said something that made me feel a little bit comfortable because he said he knew I was doing a good job and the whole of cabinet was happy with my involvement or participation in the communication space for government. And he said he was gonna make sure that I don't end up in the streets. He would find an alternative place for me in one government department. So it was an attempt on his part to actually soften the blow but also to make it very clear to me that in fact he did not agree with that decision but he had to implement it because he didn't have a choice mm. and mm. That, that's how it actually panned out we went out of his office went to have a, a smoke outside the office uh, <laughs> where he basically shared with me his frustration that you know he was put in this very difficult position of removing somebody mm. who was doing a job a good job that he as my supervisor was very happy with uh, but he had to implement this this decision. So we parted on the note that he was going to look for a an alternative job for me, and that I mustn't say anything to anybody. It must be just between the two of us. Hmm. Um, so this was on a Monday morning, and then I go to the cabinet meeting the following the next Wednesday. Hmm. Um, we're sitting in the meeting, nothing's happening, and it's just normal cabinet meeting with me preparing my statement as they're taking decisions. I'm writing the decisions as part of preparing the media statement. And then there's a coffee break around 10, 10.30. And then I get a call from my office to ask me what was going on. And I check my phone. I've got numerous messages, WhatsApps and voicemails mm. 
and it turned out that in fact there was a story that E News then, which became ETV, was mm. running that I had been fired. Um, I went back to I looked for Collins Chawane, my minister, and asked him, did, did you know anything about this? And he said, no, no, he was shocked to hear that this was the case. And he said, listen, don't do anything. I'll go and find out from the president. Um, he went and had a chat with the president um, and came back to me and said, the president has confirmed that in fact, it is indeed true. I'm, I'm no longer the head of uh, GCIS. So as I'm sitting in this meeting and Collins is say, told me that in fact, he was gonna try and find another post for me. I'm sitting in this cabinet meeting, just lost as to what was actually going on. Um, and towards the end of the cabinet meeting, the president then says to Minister Chabane or to the cabinet meeting, uh, colleagues, Minister Chabane has an important announcement to make. And there I was sitting in this cabinet meeting and Minister Chabane announces that in fact, I had been removed as the GCIS, uh, head of GCIS and government spokesperson. And that I'll be replaced by Jimmy Manye or Mzonele Manye as is known today. And that my, I will be the new director general in the Department of Public Service and Administration. And you had no idea that I was hearing that part for the first time that I was now DG of DBSA, but mm. I understood that uh, Collins Chaban was trying to manage a very complex situation. Um, and that's how it turned out. So I, I, I left the, the cabinet meeting ended and I had to issue a statement announcing that in fact, I'm no longer head of GCIS and I'm now DG of DPSA. Just to conclude this part, um, mm. what was also important was that the minister of DPSA uh, Minister Baloy at the time was not at the cabinet meeting. Um, so I thought I should give him a call before I make the announcement to mm -hmm. just make sure that he's aware of this, he, does he agree with this? And when I called him, he was shocked out of his system. <laughs> so no and one knew him, about this. <laughs> it looks like Minister Chabane had not had the chance, the opportunity yeah, to yeah. even call him and alert him sure. to this. So sure. Minister, Baloyi was shocked and he basically said, no, no, he doesn't understand how this could be done without anybody consulting him. But mm. that was the story. And I told him, listen, unfortunately, it's a cabinet decision. I have to announce it. I made the announcement and that was the end of my story at GCS. Mm. Mm. So as someone who sat in cabinet um, and in the book, you, you say that it started to become clear, at least to you, that there was something bigger than just your job at stake here. And you write that by 2014, most, if not all, NEC members and ministers either knew or ought to have known that the Guptas were using their friendship with Zuma to gain undue and unlawful influence over the affairs of the state and most, if not all, state entities. Not all state entities. So, Knowing that and writing that as you did, that by 2014, do you think it's um, reasonable for anyone who served in the cabinet, at least from 2014 onwards, to profess that they didn't know what was going on? Look, at that stage, but when my situation unfolded and removed, was removed from GCIS, I mean, I had no clue that there was a, a bigger game at place. Um, um, but there were stories already doing rounds in the media, in the corridors to talk about this Gupta family 
and what they were trying to do. And I saw my situation more as defiance of Zuma's instruction to me and um, exposing what the Guptas were trying to do with GCIS. I was just defying them at, the, at that stage. But mm. subsequent to my departure from government, it became very clear to me that in fact, there was something bigger at play that was, was not being given full attention. And in the book, I talk about incidents that made me decide that beyond just defying Zuma and the Guptas, there's also a need to begin to expose what they did uh, to, to me or what they were trying to do at GCIS. And that's when I blew the whistle. But at mm. that time, there were all manner of stories of CEOs of SOEs, Transnet and ESCOM, getting all kinds of calls from the Gupta family demanding this or that contract. Ministers already indicating that um, they were getting to know about their appointments prior to any announcements by the president. So there were all of those kinds of stories. So as I'm sitting now and thinking about that period, I would find it very difficult for anybody to, to claim not to have known mm -hmm. because these stories were, were already circulating within government, within the ruling party uh, and in broader society. Well, that's, uh, that's seems logical to me, um, but I'll just leave it at that. I won't, I won't push it any further. Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm interested in this period after you leave uh, GCIS, you, you spend a brief period um, as a DG, but eventually leave the public service in 2011, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's a period where you go into reflection and slowly state capture becomes more and more obvious, as you say, um, until the 2016 revelation from WC Jonas, or at least allegation, I suppose, um, about you know his being offered all this money um, to become Minister of Finance. What I'm interested in, because you are still one of the few people from within the ANC who has actually, quite frankly, had the guts to speak out and, uh, and to do so quite boldly. What I'm interested in is why that is so hard, why there are still relatively few um, who have spoken out of their own volition and not been you know, compelled to do so. And what I just don't understand is the ANC is a party of activists, people who are bold, who stood up to the apartheid government, who, who risked their lives. Yet so few of the same people are willing to risk their salaries. Yeah, that's a, quite a difficult one because you see, we got to understand the authority and the power that the president of any party, not just the ANC, EFF, DA, mm. the president, the leader is absolute power. Um, when you are leader of the ANC, you're also president of the country. You've got massive power to appoint and disappoint people into your cabinet. Mm. So when mm. people are sitting in those NEC meetings, they're sitting there, either they're already ministers or hoping to be ministers in the future. Um, and when you're already in that cabinet, um, it is very difficult for you to speak out against the president because chances of you being dismissed overnight uh, are actually real. Mm. And the Zuma presidency actually demonstrated that because you saw the numerous cabinet reshuffles that were implemented by then. And people knew that if they step out of line, 
chances of them losing their positions were quite great. And Zuma at the time was a very popular president uh, in the party, especially mm. um, to some extent in the country as well. So people feared that if they were to speak out, they would lose actually a lot their jobs, their income. And as I stated at the beginning, a lot of our leaders are people who are solely dependent on public service jobs for their livelihoods. So a lot of them don't have qualifications, don't have professions. So the job that they have in government, they'll try and hold on to it as much as they possibly could. And I'm also aware of a number of even government officials, civil servants, who were aware of what was taking place within their own departments, but feared coming mm. out. I mean, we, if you look at the book towards the end, I've attached a memorandum that mm. was signed by more than 28 DGs or 23, yeah. 28 DGs, who actually said they are aware of these things happening. But after signing, we then invited a lot of other government officials to speak out. But people have to think about their own livelihoods. They've got kids at school, they've got bonds to pay, they've got car yeah. installments. If you speak out and you lose your job, you risk everything. And people tended to be willing to speak in dark corridors than to come out and actually expose what was happening in government. So unfortunately, that's the nature of the times in which we live. Uh, where the majority of people who end up in these positions do not have other careers. So if they lose their jobs, chances are that um, they'll, they'll become desperate. And also, mm -hmm. they, and something that I've experienced personally, the political iso isolation that comes as a result mm -hmm. of speaking up against the leader of the party is quite immense. And, and very few people mm -hmm. actually have the courage to actually take a stand and, and, and speak out against the most powerful leader in the party and in government. And that's why people opted to keep quiet. What's that been like for you? Uh, you do mention it in the book, but I think it's important for people to appreciate when you are a powerful figure in the ANC, opportunity is all around you, money is all around you, power is all around you. And then suddenly you speak out and, and what's that isolation like? Uh, I go into more detail in the book, but it's actually quite big. I mean, if you've mm -hmm. lived your life being part of the, the political system, the political mm -hmm. networks in the country, speaking out can lead to serious isolation. I mean, I, I, I was in a situation where a lot of people, activists, my own comrades, did not know how to relate to me. Uh, I, I relate an incident where I attended um, a funeral of an old comrade of mine, Ronnie Mamuyepa, a spokesperson for foreign affairs for many years. Mm -hmm. I got there when I arrived in the parking lot. Uh, Many of government officials and activists were there hugging and talking, but as we we're getting closer and closer to the venue, you know, people found other things to do, uh, other people to talk to. And I just found myself alone, got into the room, and people were just saying hi, and, you know, people that I knew and were close to. Um, and I ended up even leaving that, that ceremony because I was just feeling so isolated. And people just were not sure how to deal with me. Is it? They didn't want to be seen to be associating with me. So political isolation becomes quite huge. People don't return your calls. People mm -hmm. don't talk to you. You don't get invited to meetings. When you come, you're made to feel unwelcome. There's also the, the, the personal side of it. I mean, the, the financial impact that it has because you know business, private sector, 
doesn't want to touch you because you're seen to be too controversial. Mm. Uh, you try to go to banks to seek funding for business opportunities. You're called a politically exposed person. So nobody wants to touch you. So the impact in writing that book was actually quite emotional for me because I was on the one hand wanting to share my own experiences, but at the same time, trying to measure what I say, because you also don't want to discourage people from speaking out. Because if you give too much detail, chances are that you'll be discouraging people who are in the public service today, who may want to speak out against corruption because they wouldn't want to deal and handle, the, with, they handle those consequences, personal consequences. So I would imagine many of the leaders would not wanted to speak out because they knew that if they speak out, uh, they'll be isolated. They will not get any government jobs, they'll not get income. And I think there are numerous cases of people who almost lost their livelihoods uh, for, for speaking out. So it is a, a, a tough ask, but an, an important ask uh, nonetheless. But I mean, I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation. I think it's important to, to know that part of what I was trying to achieve with this book was to encourage more activists to write their own stories and share them. But most importantly, I was beginning to be known as a person who spoke out against the, Gup the Guptas, but I wanted to tell a story to say there are other things I did in, in mm. this life mm. beyond just government communications. I mean, many people have almost forgotten that I started the Gauteng Department of Education, GDE. Mm. Mm. Many of those on social media who call me names and swear at me don't even realize that you know their metric certificates bear my signature in, the, in their <laughs> living room. <laughs> and I wanted to remind people that there's more to me than just uh, mm. defying Zuma and speaking out against the Guptas. So yeah, I thought I should share that. No, that's that's absolutely true. And I hope that the viewers will go out and get this book. Um, Baba, thanks so much for joining us on SNWX, for sharing that story, and for sharing this story in a book that future generations can actually access and uh, read for themselves. I think your story is one um, which is powerful, which is important, and which uh, shows integrity at each stage of your life. So thanks for joining us on SMWX. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.